Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, the following is a presentation of the Belly Up Sports Media Network. Part of the Belly Up Sports Network. Here are your hosts, Ken and Trevor. And welcome everyone to the show. Trevor, how you doing? I'm doing fairly well today, Ken. Yourself? Not too bad, not too bad. It's it's been a little while since we've sat down and done this. This time not so much our doings as there were some technical difficulties with the uh show getting out there so we kind of held off until it was good i mean our our uh cfl playoff preview actually hit the uh <laughs> errors availability for, during the gray cup so um for those that either haven't had a chance to listen to it i went three for four in my predictions and unfortunately it was my bc lions prediction i got wrong against the bombers but uh yeah, I mean, I think I picked the Bombers to to win, but I did say Montreal could beat them. I think Winnipeg is beatable. That that happened. So, but we are back, and we're gonna we're gonna talk some sports again today. We are actually. You know, let, let's quickly talk Great Cup. You know, it's it's about a week ago that it happened. I was as well was three for four in my picks. Uh, I had the Argos uh, getting through to the West or the Great Cup. Unfortunately, they did not. The Montreal Alouettes did. Uh, good on them. It was, uh, I still don't know how they did it. I don't know how they won both games. They did. The Montreal Alouettes are the great, are the great cup champions. Um, I had Winnipeg winning the great cup. I thought it was going to be a, um, a cakewalk to be brutally honest. I just didn't see how an inept Montreal offense was going to keep up with the Winnipeg blue bombers. And they did. They, it didn't look like it was going to be that way early on in the game. The Bombers got out to a 10 nothing lead, and then, boom, a quick three or four play drive and by, you know, Fajardo and the Alouettes, and they're right back in it. And then it, it just felt like – he always felt like the Bombers were going to run away and hide early on in that game. They didn't. And then, you know, they got back up, I think it was 17-7, and then they had a, a, a goal line stand at the end of the first half. I think it was 17-10, and don't quote me on this, going into halftime or 17-13. And you just felt like that goal line stand was going to be the end of it, the end of the game. It was like the final, you know, the, the momentum swing. And I'll give it to the the Alouettes. They came out in the second half. First drive, they get the ball three plays in the end zone, stuff the Bombers for pretty much the entire second half. And, and finally, the Bombers do respond. Late in about halfway through the fourth quarter, get a touchdown, take the lead, and boom, the Alouettes come right back. 11 seconds left, a 40-yard touchdown uh, pass from Fajardo to Philpott. You know, there was a third and five to play prior. 
where uh, Jardo throws a, a 30-yard bomb. It was, oh, talk about a great, wonderful Grey Cup. Like, you know, for some reason, it feels like every year the Grey Cup game is phenomenal. This year was phenomenal. Last year, the the Argos Bombers was a phenomenal Grey Cup game. Um, the only bad was, well, four years ago, five years ago, was like the, the Bombers smoked the Ticats like 31-13 or something like that. Yeah. Other than that, the, the Grey Cup game for the last decade has been just phenomenal. And, and once again, like, hats off to the CFL. The Grey Cup halftime show, Green Day, did just an absolutely wonderful performance. You know, there's tons of people who weren't even, you know, 90s alternative fans, rock fans who were just like, what a great halftime show. I would almost um, argue that the, the, the Grey Cup halftime show might be better than the Super Bowl halftime show this year. Yeah. Well, people were upset that they got picked. And I mean, unfortunately, I, I, I wasn't able to watch the game and only saw the uh, uh, Green Day performance later on. Thank you for sending it. Um, because I was at a, unfortunately a, a family event, um, that it, uh, we had to be out of town for, but I saw all the lead up to the great cup and did the CFL themselves. Oh, could you only Argos way. or not the Argos, the, wow. Um, fuel the owls in wanting to prove something. There was no French logo on the field like the day before the game, they had to rush and put the uh, LCF in each end zone, the center field. And I get the center field. You should only one logo. I, I get that. Like it's the center field logo. They should it's put a gray cup one. in the center field. So yeah. I wanted, it should be a big gray cup in the middle of the center field logo. Anyways, continue on. Yeah. But like to not then automatically have the CFL and LCF, in the end zones next to the two team names, that's a that's a miss. Apparently, the entire stadium was just in English. Um, and and then on top of it, TSN, the only channel broadcasting the team, has Winnipeg versus Toronto on like on the channel guide, like. I, I just there was like the CFL fumbled the ball leading into it and and based on and I I'm not going to try because I'll butcher his name and I, I can't remember but the the French rookie for the Owls who um, had a great game from the highlights and everything I saw and had a great season rookie uh, absolutely went off in French on on everything and and you know it's one of those things it, it just. It was a that would I would say was probably about the only black eye that I could see leading. Again, I didn't see the game, so I can't really comment on the game. But the only kind of like mark against it would be that lead up with all the the stuff that went on, and of course, Arash Madani pointing every little bit of it out, um, as he sometimes tends to do with the CFL being a, a little bush league. But he uh, he does rub some people the wrong way, but I don't necessarily think he was wrong in pointing this stuff out with the CFL this time. I don't think he was either. You made a really good point. I, I There's an extension of, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, CFL? Yeah. Like, you, you couldn't even, you can't even get like, this is a bilingual league. You have teams in a, in a bilingual province and 
know, you had unilingual signage on display. Someone had to say something for them to finally change it. Like, talk about just, you know, read the room a little bit. You know, Hamilton, the game was in Hamilton. And, and, you know, Ontario has a a relatively high French-speaking population being in such close proximity to Quebec in Canada. I was stunned when I saw something. It was like, but you said, you know, they fumbled the ball. The, the CFL fumbled the ball the whole way through the season this year. I it, felt it's like nothing it was, new. It's nothing yeah, new. Yeah. I felt like this year, more than other years, the CFL just couldn't get out of their own way. Well, and that's there's Thank only one, one league that gets in their way more than the CFL. Yeah. The NHL. Yeah. <laughs> the, you know, but thank goodness they had the playoffs were pretty good. The CFL playoffs were pretty good. The Great Cup culminated in an absolutely tremendous game. You know, the Great Cup halftime show was tremendous. So at least this season, which we felt like they fumbled and bumbled their way through, ended on a high note. And hopefully they can use that going into next year and and you know run with it. Well, Don't I get think... stuffed on third and inches. Yeah. <laughs> I think the fact that out of the six teams in the in the playoffs were above 500 that was a worry in that like what kind of quality of game are we gonna get right like were the east and west semifinals gonna be blowouts like calgary scored some late points in that game but the lions had it in hand a little early on but you know it, it wasn't a horrible game uh bc didn't look right against winnipeg but even for the longest time they weren't necessarily out of the game. And I thought that was a little bit of a, like with Winnipeg losing in the gray cup, I think that was maybe a little bit of a precursor because BC didn't look sharp and Winnipeg still allowed them to be in the game. They, they Brady Oliveira was running the ball on them and they, they all of a sudden start going away from that. Like it could have been real ugly if they just kept the ball in Brady's hands, but they, they went away from it and, you almost got to kind of wonder, like, why would you do that, right? Like, so, but for the most part, the games were good. Nothing was, you know, there was no ugly game in the playoffs. And that was nice because there was a lot of ugly records in the CFL and ugly wins by the top teams that, like, BC, Winnipeg, Toronto. Those teams won ugly in games. And, and I mean, when I say ugly, I mean, they beat the hell out of the teams they were playing. And those teams were also half of the playoff field. So it was a good playoffs, I'd say. I, I want to take you back. I want to go back to the, the Calgary-Vancouver, the, the Lions-Stampeders game, and why I thought it was a good game. Because to me, it was an exhibition of what the CFL is, can be. It was lots of points, lots of offense, lots of high-flying plays. Vernon Adams was absolutely electric that game. The passing game was... Phenomenal. I got to give hats off to the Stampeders a little bit. They came in and put up 30 points you know, against the top BC Lions defense. Jake Mayer didn't look, you know, like he had earlier in the season where he was overwhelmed. It was, to me, that game was just kind of a, a overall a representation of this is what the CFL can be. High flying, lots of excitement, lots of points, defensive stands and turnovers when you needed them. Just a very exciting game to watch. Every time a team got the ball in that game, you felt like they were going to score. 
Yeah. To me, that is Canadian football. And, you know, if you were to outside of the Grey Cup, because the Grey Cup was just phenomenal. That was such a good game. If There's a few games this year, but I, I think if you wanted to showcase to a new fan what the CFL could be and why it's exciting, I would throw on that West semifinal Stamps-Lions game. It was high-octane, a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed it for several reasons, especially the W, but... Uh, I enjoyed it. It was a good yeah. football game. I think the only thing that, like, the worrying thing that for me now as a BC Lions fan that happened in the playoffs was potentially the field conditions in Winnipeg because you had TJ Lee and Keon Hatcher go out with Achilles tears and it almost looked like Adam Big Hill went out with one as well. And it was like three, like those injuries happened as I sent you that Miami Dolphin, I think cornerback who had his rupture on just taking a step there, but it, it it's an ugly injury. It's so rare that you see potentially three of them in a half of football. Like, I don't know if it was just the too cold and maybe wrong cleat selection, but I don't think, I don't think you get wrong cleat selection at this level and they can put enough time and money into figuring out what, what equipment they need. It was just, that was a, ugh, cause now you got two, two good players in the CFL that are going to miss significant time next season. And uh, that's, it's unfortunate. Yeah. I think, I think it was just freak. I, I don't think it had the field conditions had anything to do with it. You know, to talk field conditions. Let's rewind to, was it the 2019 Grey Cup in Edmonton where <laughs> the field was literally a sheet of ice. Yeah. I think it was the, the that wouldn't steps red blacks or <laughs> you want to talk poor field conditions in the biggest of games. But I, you know, you're seeing it in the NFL in, you know, the Giants and Jets. It seems like every time they play a home game, somebody gets a non-contact rupture, tendon rupture playing on that field. So yeah. I think it was just sheer fluke. But, you know, it is that time of the year where, you know, you're playing on potentially slightly icy fields in, in Canada. And there is always that opportunity. So if Connor McDavid can get a heated driveway, I think the teams that play in elements like that can get a heated field. It's uh let's I mean, prefer hey, heated seats. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, you know, maybe some teams would uh shell out some money and build a dome their stadium, they'd be all right. Wouldn't have these issues. You <laughs> can nice 30 degrees in winter, you can show up to a game in shorts and a t-shirt and sandals. Uh, there's games I wish I was. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's Trevor. Let's jump into. Are you kidding me? I know we got a few things to talk about here before we get into our uh, main topic of the day, which is we've reached the quarter point in the NHL. We're going to discuss uh, the Western Canadian teams and and what's going on. But Trevor, why don't you jump into? Uh, are you kidding me? Start us off. Okay. Well, I'm going to go to Major League Baseball with my first. Are you kidding me? And talk about Shea Shohei. Oh no, no, I'm not. I'm going to go to what felt like Major League Baseball, and I'm going to go to the New York Rangers versus Boston Bruins on the weekend. And Jacob Truba. Now, if you haven't seen it, I highly suggest you see it because you watch the clip because this is this is insane. Like the NHL player safety, George Perros. Are you kidding me? Shohei Hotani pretty much swings for the fences against Trent Federick's helmet. A solid, you know, two-hand swing with a hockey stick 
smoking Trent Frederick in the side of the helmet. Sorry, Jacob Trubot, wrong sport again. I, it's highly confusing. I'm having a hard time here, you know, differentiating the two. Jacob Truba, absolutely high stick slashes, spears, whatever you want to call it, clubs, hatchets. Trent Federick, yeah, hatchets. A Boston Bruins player right on the side of the head with a in the helmet. Clear as day, video evidence, clear as day. I'm thinking five game suspension, maybe Animal. more, you know, in person hearing. You know, Truba is known for walking the line a little bit, but doesn't get suspended, which kind of surprises me. No, no, $5,000 fine. That's it. Are you kidding me? This is like Donald Brashear, Marty McSorley-esque type swing. Again, if you haven't seen that, I, you know, maybe don't watch it, but it's pretty gruesome. You know, a two-hander across the side of the head, almost knocking a guy out. Well, did knock out. It did, out. yeah. Pretty much, pretty much ended his career. I guess the only thing that was missing was the fact that the Bruins player didn't get hurt. But that doesn't matter. That doesn't excuse the action in this place. It was a vicious two-handed swing that didn't even – it didn't even get a penalty on the play. Like, first no. of all, the NHL referees, what the fuck are you looking at? Like there's this is happening in a scrum and you don't see a guy do a two four guys on the ice swing yeah. Yeah. four guys on the ice miss it miss it you don't even see it there was even a penalty on the play it should have been a five minute major in a game misconduct and it should have warranted five minimum game suspension it is brutal nope nothing not even a penalty on the play and a five thousand dollar fine and I saw this on on X. That fine, more or less, you know, let's put it into real person's terms, you know, for the average person making, let's say, $50,000 a year. The $5,000 fine is like a $37.50 fine to a normal everyday person making 50 grand a year. Unbelievable. Ridiculous. They've got to change this. And there's got to be an appeal process in place with maybe the player that got high stick can appeal the ruling. I suppose maybe maybe the guy the team the team should be able to the team should be able to like you know they always have the ability for the guy who gets suspended to appeal. Well, if I'm if I'm the Boston Bruins, I'm going. Um, I'd like to appeal this decision, please. It, brutal, brutal. Well, just, and just because Frederick didn't go down doesn't mean he may not have a slight concussion. It, it what bothers me about it is the it seemed to me that the fine came down before the third period buzzer went for to end the game like it was same night right away fine so usually when you talk about you know something that happened like the you know Brashear McSorley incident 23 years ago or 20 years ago where McSorley got 23 games for that um usually when you talk about you know 2000 to 2023 you're talking about inflation and how something was 23 games 20 years ago now should be 35 because of inflation no we're going the wrong way and you're fining someone for that? Like, there is zero consistency. And you and I, we, we did almost a whole show on this, where I said that when it comes to the Department of Player Safety, it shouldn't be a former goon who could barely tie his skates and get on the ice. I don't care if you went to some Ivy League school, right? Like, I don't care how smart he is. He's clearly not capable of doing his job properly. Any suspension or any kind of 
discipline should be doled out by a third-party company that looks at the rules, looks at the act, and suspends the act. Stop suspending the outcome. Stop suspending the fact that, oh, he didn't get her. He didn't even go down. $5,000 fine. Enough of this bullshit. Just suspend and discipline the act that was done on the ice. So if I two-hand swing at someone's head with a, you know, with a sword, for lack of a better term, and I miss, well, that's still attempted murder. Right? Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's still... Just because you miss or you don't hurt the guy doesn't mean you get to skate on it. So they got to stop suspending the outcome or disciplining the outcome and discipline the act. And Jacob Truba, oh, I would say barely walks a fine line on how he plays. So many times his hits are high to the head and not that clean. How many guys has he given a concussion to and everyone's like, well, that's a good clean hit. Really? Because his shoulder pad was square into his forehead. And he left his feet or the guy wasn't looking, didn't even have the puck. Jacob Truba gets away with almost murder every season. What really surprised me about this is, and the fact that I felt like, like they, the NHL Player Safety Department may have actually turned a corner this year. When, you know, the first suspension of the year went to Rasmus Anderson of the Calgary Flames, a four-game suspension for, you know, hitting Patrick Line late in the game, you know, up high, headshot, you know, I thought they got that one right. I thought, you know what, hey, they're sending a message. You know, this is, he was Rasmus Anderson wasn't a repeat offender, and, and, but they did, I felt like they didn't care. It was like, that was a bad play. They gave him a four-game suspension. I was like, you know what, good. Let, let's clean this up. You know, the, just a couple weeks ago, Andrew Mangiapane, again, of the Calgary Flames, got a one-game suspension. I felt it was a little light. I actually felt like he should have got two games. And, you know, he more or less fell on a guy and cross-checked him in the back of the neck as the guy was on the ground. You know, the it didn't look vicious, but it was definitely a dirty play. But here's where I now have a struggle. And, Ken, you've seen both the highlights. Which one actually looked worse, Andrew Mangiapane or Jacob Truba? Truba's. The Truba one. Like, he's two-hand swung, and Truba didn't even get suspended. Why don't you, you can say he, felt like, he fell on the guy and didn't mean to do it? When you're swinging at a guy who's six feet tall. I, and I'm not trying, I'm not one that I like to go, well, this person got suspended X game, so this guy should have got that. I'm just trying to go with the visual of the two where I felt like, and I said they were turning the corner in NHL player safety. You know, the visual of the Mangiapati wasn't gross. The act was, though, it was you two-handed cross-checked a guy that was lying on the ice in a vulnerable position. Applaud it. Absolutely. Suspend him. But then you see the visual of the two in comparison of Andrew Mangiapati and Jacob Truba, and the Truba one is horrific, and he got nothing. Like, what is happening? That is oh, not good enough. And at some point, like... This is just, you can't have guys two heads swinging a hockey stick and hitting another guy in the head and there'd be no repercussions for it. Yeah. And just, it really bugs me the speed at which it was determined. Like, you cannot properly review it and look at it 20 minutes after it happened. No suspension has come or fine has come down that quick. Like, 
uh, Niels Hoglander got a five in a game for a bit of like a, a slew foot. Called it, it was a slew foot, and he got five in a game for it. His suspension didn't come down until the next day. Why? Because that's how it generally works. They look at it, they review it, they take their time, they come down with the punishment. Not in this case. Like it just so lightning fast. It was like, oh, Truba, just give him a fine. It's good. We're fine. Well, I was just going to say, I was betting it was because the Rangers played today and they wanted to have it taken care of before the game, but they don't. That yeah. that surprises me. I figured that was the reason why the ruling came down so fast, but they don't play today. So that's uh, yeah. that's actually very surprising. Well, even with the, if they did an in-person hearing, he still would have missed the game or he could have appealed and played, had the hearing, and then gone on. But it's just... Department of player safety is a joke. We talk about it all the time. It never changes. So we're going to go from the from the ice to the hard court, to the hardwood in the NBA. Or, or the bedroom. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, this one, you know, Oklahoma City, OKC player Josh Giddy is under investigation for an inappropriate relationship with a minor. I'm not going to get into the details of it and everything like that, but this is a pretty gross incident. And the fact that he, the NBA has is investigating this. Sure. They're they're doing their due diligence where I say, are you kidding me? Is while under investigation for this, he is still with the team practicing and playing games starting for the thunder are you kidding me now i i sent you a a thing on x i think last night or the night before where i said you know john morant and not saying he shouldn't have been suspended immediately or away from the team while they figured it out is away from the team automatically when he had his uh gun thing come up and he's flashing a gun which you know owning gun ownership is legal in the united states what Josh Giddy's being investigated for is not. What yeah. What John Morant did made the league apparently look bad. Um, what Josh Giddy is being accused of doing doesn't make the league look bad. You know, and and uh I, I am absolutely floored that uh he is even anywhere remotely near the team and speaking to the media. Not necessarily about it because he says that's no comment. But what do you think? Do you think anyone gives a shit who Josh Giddy is and wanted to talk to him before this? Probably not. Right? But like, are you kidding me? And uh, uh, it's just very odd that one player is suspended and away from the team automatically when there's an incident, yet this one isn't. There's definitely a difference. I'll say it or not. not one's what? One's white. One's not. So, uh, I wasn't going to touch on it, but I think there is yeah. some validity to that. I do subscribe to the innocent until proven guilty. I do. I do not subscribe to the player being on showcase while this investigation is going on. Can we maybe keep him out of the limelight? Can we maybe let the league and you know the possibly the you know the police 
do their due diligence. Can we maybe just maybe keep him away from the team while this is going on instead of putting a microphone in front of his his face? Can we maybe not have his home fans absolutely giving an electrifying cheer as he's being announced in the starting lineup? Maybe not to R. Kelly as well. Yeah, yeah, a very good point. Can we maybe not do that? And, and I have an I issue. Say, when I say away from the team, I don't mean like they can still have them get paid until they figure it out, right? Like you're going to be away from the team on paid leave. They can do that until they get it sorted out. Then that way he's not being punished. If I mean, they're, from the stuff that you've seen online in the pictures, it's kind of damning. It is pretty damning. Yes, but yes, we don't know, right? Um, sorry, I didn't just, they just put them on paid leave until they figure it out and then suspend them either retroactively or find them that amount to get it back or whatever, but just have them away from the team. Yeah. It, what message do this send? Does this send to you? you know, you're trying to grow the game and, and I, you and I were talking last week about the, the in-season tournament, just kind of off about growing the game, trying to you know, appeal to a different set of fans. You know, they got the cool uniforms and the crazy floors. And and I had said to you, I said, you know, if they go and appeal to, you know, young boys and girls and draw them into the sport as a result of this, it's been a success. Well, you know, talking about growing to the game and appealing to fans, what does this say to young teenagers? This isn't a good thing. And... I'm appalled that he's out in the limelight. I'm appalled that he's playing again, innocent until proven guilty. Let's put put him on administrative leave. I'm with you, Ken. Just get him away from the spotlight and let's let, you know, the investigation do its due course. But to parade him out in front and put a microphone in his face is, are you kidding me? Come on, be better. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty sad. Um, Yeah. I also find too that some of the people making jokes about it on on X and other things are it's poor taste. Like it, everything on X is poor taste, so yeah. I'm not surprised anymore. It's no, it, yeah. Well, uh, Ken, let's move on from this this topic. And but we got one more. Are you kidding me? And why don't you you know why don't you take it? Yeah. So. We talked about the NHL being the only league that manages to get in their own way more than the CFL on a bigger, bigger stage. They've banned all uniforms and other things for the the different types of nights that the, the teams have, like Pride Night, um, Forces Night, uh, you know, Indigenous Night, all the different ones that they do. And going to head out to Minnesota for this one, good old Minnesota where they were having their indigenous night. Now, I applaud Mark Andre Fleury for this, absolutely, as, you know, I, I am indigenous. And um, he he had a mask designed by an indigenous artist to wear during warm-up. And also wasn't just for the night. His wife is also indigenous. So he was doing it for to honor both. And it was a lovely, a great mask. It had a very nice look, fit with... The whole thing and where I applaud him for this, he probably could have gotten away with everything without the threats of the NHL fining him and substantial fines to the wild if he just wore it and didn't say anything. 
but he made a point to go out and say, I'm wearing this on this night because of this. Good for you, Marc-Andre Fleury. Thank you. And to the NHL, go to hell. Like, are you serious? You've made such a joke of this season and everything that goes along with it. The NHL to threaten to fine him substantially. Like what? You're going to fine him $5,000 because that's the max you can fine him. But you didn't fine Travis Dermott. And then you went backwards on the pride tape ban. Oh, but Travis Dermott was magically healthy scratched the night of the Coyotes pride night. Um, so I wonder how that happened. Um, the, the league's a joke. Like Logan Thompson of the Vegas Golden Knights wanted to put a cancer ribbon on the back of his helmet. League said no. Yet Bobrovsky and Grubauer had purple purple masks for hockey fights cancer. That was okay. Like this whole thing is just a joke. And I got to say, the NHL, are you kidding me? And Marc-Andre Fleury, Travis Dermott, and the others that are doing things like this, good for you. It's Mickey Mouse. That's what it is. It's like, it's almost like playing favorites. Oh, well, we like this guy. We'll, you know, we'll turn a blind eye and let them wear the ribbon on the mask or wear a purple helmet or, oh, but this guy, no, we can't, oh, can't have an indigenous mask. Like, no, that sends a bad message. You know, can't have pride tape. Oh, but maybe we can, you know, I guess the backlash was bigger than we expected. And uh, I guess it's just, it's, it's so Mickey Mouse by the league, and reversing the 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 tape ad was the right thing. It <laughs> never happened. Yeah, it should never happen in the first place. It is so Mickey Mouse. This league, they it's like Batman can't even make up his mind. It's it's become you know hockey is not for everybody. You know this the the saying of hockey is for everyone is the biggest farce in the face of the earth. Like it. Hockey is not for everybody. Gary Batman is not for everybody. It's no. it is it is disappointing what is going on in the NHL this year. And you know, I, I fully applaud Mark Andre Fleury for pretty much saying NHL to hell with you. We'll take the fine. The Minnesota Wild pretty much saying to hell with the NHL. We'll pay the fine. Yeah, I'm he pretty wore sure it, there's so. a yeah yeah he wore it. You know, there was a significant fine given to the Minnesota Wild organization, and they're just like, "Yeah, what? Who cares? Do it." Yeah, good on them. Good on them. They got to sort. This is one thing they got to sort out heading into next year. Is you know, just let the let the teams celebrate these events. What is wrong with letting the individual players choose to or choose not to celebrate the nights? And a lot of times. If you don't want to wear an Indigenous jersey, don't. You do, do. You don't want to wear a Pride jersey, don't. You do, do. But also be ready to understand there's going to be repercussions to those decisions. And, and, you know, and and you can respectfully say why you chose not to, you know, wear the Pride jersey. You can have that conversation. But there's also another side to it where online, well, maybe let's not attack these players for choosing not to wear a, a pride jersey. You know, you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And if you want them to wear pride jerseys or indigenous jerseys and they choose not to, okay, well, that's their choice. Don't attack them for not wearing it. You may not agree with their belief values, but it doesn't give you the right to attack them online because that is what happens. And that's what yeah. drove this in the first place. So, 
know, it's let's be respectful to everybody. Like, how hard is that? And it, you know, it, I, I don't. You cheer for the Canucks. I don't hold it against you. Well, sometimes I do, but it. You know, I can be respectful of the fact that you cheer for the Canucks. You're respectful of the fact I cheer for the Flames. It's how hard is that? Some days, um, <laughs> no, like, but if you pull the players, I bet you majority of players want these nights back, right? It's in their contract that these nights are like well, probably used to be, it probably still is, but it's a moot point now that these nights would happen. And it's on your, it's in the contract that you will participate in these nights. A lot of times these jerseys sell for, especially the, the warm up worn ones sell for auctioned off for just an exorbitant amount of money. But I think sometimes the money is being used to go to charities and other support other things like that. So you're taking that away because why is someone going to bid on a jersey that wasn't actually worn in warm-ups by a Pedersen or a Huberdo or a Markstrom or a Demko or a Hughes if they didn't actually wear it, right? Like the teams are still creating these wonderful jerseys and getting uh, artists from each group to design them. It's just unfortunate that a few pretty much wrecked it for all. Okay, well, that's it for Are You Kidding Me this week. We'd love to hear from you guys. What did you think of the uh, Shoai Hotani two-hander, uh, the Minnesota Wild? I'm, you know, If you're a Wild fan or not, I'd love to hear from you guys. You know, I don't really want to touch on the Getty one too much more. Reach out to us on Twitter. No. X, I'm at the BleacherCon1. Ken is at the BleacherCon2 or our Facebook page, The Bleacher Connection. All right, Char, so we've hit vote for most teams, the, the quarter point of the NHL season. Apparently for some teams like Minnesota, Chicago, they, they only play 18 games so far. Uh, the rest of the league is at 20, 21, 22. And there's some surprises of where the teams are sitting, and and especially for Western Canada. And I think we're going to we're gonna kind of do a bit of a, a triple header here on we're going to travel from – we're going to start – Bottom up, we're going to talk Edmonton, Calgary, and Vancouver and where these teams are sitting right now and uh, what what it has happened and what's going to happen potentially moving a little forward here. So, Trevor, let's start down at uh, seventh in the Pacific with the Stanley Cup contender Edmonton Oilers, a team that came into the season touting cup or bust, captain skates before uh, training camp. Everyone in early. This team is off the rails from the get-go. What what is going on? Well, there's a few things that are going on with the Ebbets Oilers. The first one being 97 and 29. McDavid and Drysaddle aren't scoring at 130 point pace. Uh Drysaddle's at roughly 110 point pace now. He's you know started to pick it up. McDavid looks like a shell of himself. He's you know, might get to 100 points this year. Well, the Oilers aren't designed to not have those two players not get 130 points. So that that is one of the main problems right off the start. Those two aren't scoring nearly, nearly to the pace that they should be. McDavid is like on pace for 25 goals. Sorry, dry settles on pace for like 30 goals. That's just, that's not 97 and 29 S. Stark contrast. Last year, yeah, stark contrast. Ryan Nugent Hopkins is on pace for uh, less than 20 goals. He had close to 40 last year. He was over 100 points. But can we say for Nugent so, that was an outlier last year? 
Yeah, hundred percent. It was an outlier. I was just gonna. Um, yeah. I was just gonna get to. I was more or less just going to get to that saying, I thought that that was an outlier last year. Okay. Well, what are the reasons for this? Well, here's one of the big reasons. Their power play isn't operating at 35, 40% like it was. Now it, it has increased. It's at 25% now, which a lot of teams would take a 25% clicking power play. But for the Oilers, this is actually kind of an epic fail. These guys are used to operating around 35, 40%. You know, People call them the power play merchants for a reason. You know, when you score almost one power play goal every game, it pretty much means you're starting every game up one nothing because you know you're going to get a power play goal. So they're not getting the production. The goals four per game for the Oilers, they're at three. Well, that's right in the middle of the pack. How is that even possible for a team sporting probably the two best offensive players in the world to be – in the bottom half of the league for goals for that, that, that to me, there's, there's point number one, they're not scoring like they were. And it's because of the penalty kill or sort of the power. Play. Point number two, they can't keep a puck out of their net to save their lives. They currently are giving up almost four goals per game, 30th in the NHL. They have three goaltenders who all have played minutes for them this year. They're all sub 900. Save percentage, you know, I think they're 80s. You've got Jack Campbell, who's not even with the team now. He's playing in the minors in Bakersfield in the American Hockey League, sporting a 4.49 goals against average. Stuart Skinner, their savior from last year, well, he's sporting a 3.37 goals against average. Pickard has played a couple games while he's just under three. Like, this isn't NHL caliber goaltending. It's just not. This is, and I'm sure you would agree with me, this is problem one, two, three of the Edmonton Oilers. They do not know how to play defense. Their their in-zone structure is is unbelievably abysmal. There's a highlight in the game from a couple nights ago um, oh, I can't remember who it was against. I'm totally drawing a blank. Anyways, it was the, the Oilers got yeah, smoked. Those gates, Carol. No, it's gates, Carolina. Um, I think it was. I think it was Pesci or Nekes, who it was the fifth goal of the game, and there was pretty much the Oilers four players on the ice had created a box in front of the you know around the goaltender. All of them were looking at the puck behind the net. Not a single one of them was looking at the guy coming into the slot. And, you know, the, the Carolina Hurricanes player sneaks in between McDavid and Dreisaitl right in the middle of the slot to take a pass from behind the net, boom, on a state, boom, in the net. You see McDavid and Dreisaitl do a very meager, oh, tried to stick Checo. That, would, that highlight just epitomizes to me what is wrong with the Edmonton Oilers. They're bleeding grade-A scoring chances in their own zone. It was so soft. McDavid, Dreisaitl, I think it was Bouchard and Nurse were on the ice. None of them even remotely made a play that was defensive-minded. They all just, none of them had their head on a swivel watching what's around them. It was like laser puck-focused, and it was the guy behind them that ends up scoring the goal. And just a feeble effort. That right there is just a summary of what's wrong with the Edmonton Oilers right now. 
there's just no awareness in their own zone. Well, when you're when you're coupling that no awareness in their own zone with the fact that their two best players, and not even just their two best player, you can add Nugent Hopkins to this list, aren't scoring like they were in the offensive zone. Well, that's just not a recipe for success. Now, do I still believe the Oilers are going to turn it around this year? Yes, I do. Are they going to make it to the playoffs? I don't know that they are. They're eight points back now with six teams in front of them. You have to outplay every single one of those teams to finish in the playoffs. Can you sit here and tell me that the Edmonton Oilers are going to outplay the six teams ahead of them, some of them by a wide margin, from now until the rest of the season when they can't defend? I can't be convinced of this. No, and perfect scenario. Perfect scenario. The Oilers turn it around and finish ninth. That's the perfect scenario right now. They miss the playoffs by two points and get the 16th overall pick. That is the perfect scenario. And that's where at this moment in time, the Oilers are trending to that. So here, I'm going to hit you with this. There's no way they turn it around. Three games ago, they were talking about how for the Oilers to have a leading chance of making the playoffs, they had to play at a 106-point pace for the rest of the season. That worked out to winning 70, playing 780 hockey. There's not a lot of room to lose in that. And they they like they have two players that are a plus on their team. And, and I was shocked. I missed it the first time. Cody Cece is the team leader in plus minus at plus two. Adam Ernie, who's only played 10 games, and I think is back in the minors, is plus one. Uh, who is here? Derek Ryan is, is a zero. He's even. Uh, James Hamblin is an e. Sam Gagne played eight games. He's back for the 15th time with the Oilers. He's a plus. He's even. Every other player is minus three, minus seven. My, like, I've, see, I've seen the Oilers three times with play the Canucks. And their defense is just atrocious. There was the Canucks had a two on zero because both Bouchard and Nurse pinched off the offensive zone uh, blue line as the puck went around the boards and behind them, and two Canucks came out and on a two on a two on zero breakaway. This team can't play defense. Nurse is minus three. Ekholm's minus two. They're you know Dayarnay is minus three. Brett Kulak is minus nine. Their their defense Broberg is minus two in in ten games. Evan Bouchard and kind of the way I think has been horrible, absolutely horrendous this season. Yes, and he has. That's a huge problem. Now, the goaltending, I said it from the moment Inc. went to paper, Jack Campbell was the worst signing that that team could have ever done. They were only outbidding themselves to get him. He is not a $5 million goaltender. He is not a starting goaltender. But they panic signed him to way too big of a deal that by the end of the season, they'll be looking at paying them for the next six years on a buyout and killing cap space there. They've gone and done what they've done 15 other times. They fired their head coach this time, bringing in was it Chris Knobloch, uh, Connor McDavid's coach from juniors. Why? It's not the coach you've gone to. Rookie coaches from the AHL. You've gone from them to veteran coaches that have, you know, long storied careers in the NHL, winning coaches. 
It doesn't matter who's behind that bench and what experience they have. This team hasn't turned it around. There's no new coach bump this time because they're still playing sub 500 hockey and looking still poor when they do win. They beat up on Washington this weekend. Whoopie. It, it, this team, I has, I'm going to disagree with you. They will not be close to making the playoffs. They will not be turning this around. They will falter at the bottom of the Western conference. And then the NHL, they're 30th right now in the NHL. And, and it's just, it's frustrating to see because it doesn't do the game any good. I'm no Oilers fan by any means, but by God, when are we going to stop talking about the same damn thing with this team? This team is a year away from has this year and next with Leon Dreisaitl. Add a year for McDavid to that. They cannot go into game one of next season without Leon being extended in the offseason. If you get to July 3rd and you have indication that you can't sign him, you have to trade him. And honestly, it might be too late. If you want to fix your problems now and have any remote hope of doing anything, this team has to do what they've finally, what they've never done. They have to move players out and it has to be someone significant. They brought Connor Brown in. Ooh, big signing. That's their big guy that's going to help them out. He has zero points in minus seven in 13 games. Connor Brown has done jack shit to help this team. Also another Connor McDavid, former teammate, uh, teammate Neary. Um, they have to make a move. And at this point, Oilers fans are going to hate me for saying this. You got to trade Leon Dreisaitl if you want to make any needle-moving change. Because a Leon Dreisaitl will get you a bona fide number one goaltender. Because no, no one no one is going to give you that for what you have on your team outside of that. And guess what, guys? Your team's garbage this year. But if you want to make changes... Kiss your first round pick goodbye as well, because you need to blow this up and make drastic changes. I don't know that you need to trade dry settle now. I do agree with you though, with if they have any inkling this off season, especially if they miss the playoffs and it's trending that way. <clears throat> if they have any inkling at all that they cannot sign Leon dry settle to an extension, you have to trade them in the off season. You cannot risk losing him for nothing. He's making what nine million right now? Yeah, he's been he's on a very team friendly deal of like like eight point five or nine. Well, I'm sorry, that's a team friendly deal. He's been on a team friendly deal for six seven years. If you think Leon Drysaitel is taking a team friendly deal to re up with a non playoff team, because that's what the Oilers are trending to be this year. If you think. He's going to take a team-friendly deal. You're on something. No what, way. You, what's your number? For he's him? he's already underpaid. The, my number, oh, could be 13, 14 range? 13 and a half. Him, 13 and a half, and they'll give Connor 15. But that's another guy. You have to prove to Connor that something's going to change. Because if they even if they get both of those, if they pull off a miracle, that's almost thirty million in cap hit, plus nurses to put you to forty. That's gonna be like what forty million, forty five with Nuge. It's gonna be half your cap next year, or once the cap starts going up there. 
on four guys. They, like it isn't working in Toronto. It's not going to work in Edmonton. I just I can't see Connor or Connor McDavid, Leon Draisaitl going. Yeah, I'll, I'll play for eleven. I cannot see it. He's already no. under. And I can't believe I'm saying this for a guy making eight nine million dollars a year. Leon Draisaitl is horrifically underpaid right now. He's horrifically underpaid right now to have almost no playoff success. He's horrifically underpaid right now to what looks like he's going to miss the playoffs. We're talking about the first eight years of his career. He's done nothing, nothing, nothing. You telling me that he's going to want to stay for anything less than 13, 14 million dollars per year? I don't think so. I cannot see it. And so if you get back to the original point, if you get any inkling that you cannot sign him, and are you even going to have the cap space to sign him? You have to, have to look at trading him and addressing finding a number one goaltender, finding a stud def- defenseman. You know, both. You might be able to get both for Leon Dreisaitl. It, I said that was a David in, pick. You, you might be able to get both. Like, Leon Dreisaitl is one of the best players in the NHL. You know, it's going to be very hard to win that trade, but you might be able to you're you might be able to solve two organizational problems. You're going to be losing the best player in that trade, no matter what. Yeah. But you may be able to solve some organizational problems. So I want to go back to sorry, go, no, ahead. go ahead. No, no, go ahead, because I was going to finish it up with one thing. Okay, I want to go back to the coach. I want to go back to the coaching thing quickly. Here's the issue I have with the coaching change. Jay Woodcroft did not deserve to lose his job in, in any fashion. Here's the problem I have with the coaching change. And it was a, to me, a snap decision. I'm going to look at Ryan Nugent Hopkins. Ryan Nugent Hopkins is now on his, what, seventh, eighth coach in his time in Edmonton. Yeah. At what point does this fall at the feet of the players? Well, it fell at the feet of the players four coaches ago. That's what I was going to say. Every time you fire a coach, you're just telling your players, oh, it's not your paw. This isn't your, your fault. At what point are you going to hold your players accountable and responsible for the poor performance on the ice? Firing the coach just tells them, not your problem. It was the coach's fault. Don't worry about it, guys. This was a coaching problem. You're never, never going to turn the corner when you create zero accountability with your players. And then, how you do create accountability, you trade, right? And I'm, I'm just saying him because he's been there forever. Yeah. You trade Ryan Nugent Hopkins. You trade Zach Hyman. You go, if you guys aren't going to be accountable on the ice, then we're going to break up the band and we're going to trade favorites from this team to try to solve the issue. Firing the coach to me just once again tells them this isn't your fault. Don't worry about it. Any other organization is the first domino that falls because it's the easiest to push. Coaches don't make as much as yeah. some of the players. The the yeah, you got to pay them the remainder of their contract, whatever. But at the same time, it's the first domino that usually goes. And that accountability was lost three coaches ago because it should have been the coach fired, and then if not the GM, but also then the players start going. Now, I, I want to finish it off with exactly that, the GM, Kenny Holland. He is just as much holding the bag and of blame on this 
because he's the architect of this team. And sure, he was a great GM back in the days of Detroit. He's not a great GM anymore. He has managed to make this team with two of the best players in the world mediocre. They have one Western Conference final trip in all that time. And it's an absolute joke. It's a joke that the the Oilers do not have any success. And this isn't meant, this is meant to be actual analysis of it, not just a let's shit on the Oilers because it's fun. This is an actual like, how do you fix this team? And and what I don't understand here is you allow the architect of this shit show to remain and fire a coach, bring in a coach when he's on the last year of his contract. How the hell do you allow this man to continue molding this team and trying to fix it and make moves when I can't see any way in hell you re-sign him at the end of the year? It's just, to me, absolutely ludicrous that Kenny Holland still has a name on a door at uh, Rogers Arena. Rogers Place, yeah, I, it's called. I don't disagree with that either. It's there's it was said a long time ago, there's something in the water in Edmonton. Well, whatever it is that's back in the water in Edmonton, there's there's something not right there. And if they miss the playoffs this year and it's trending that way, <laughs> this could be an off season to remember in Edmonton because something's got to give. You cannot have two best players in the world and have no success to show for it. Something's not right. Yeah. So let, let, let's move down the highway in Alberta and let's talk about my Calgary Flames. And in, you know, we, we, we started this season with our kind of, what do we think our teams are going to be? And I, I think your team and my team, we thought we were going to be kind of same type of ceiling, same type of floor. Where, you know, if you're lucky, you might get to third. If you're, you know, if not, you might be in sixth or seventh in the division, you know, threatening for the the, the bottom portion of the wild cards, you know, eight, ninth, tenth. Well, lo and behold, the Calgary Flames are exactly where we figured they would be. <laughs> they are just outside the playoff picture, two points out of the final wild card spot. Some nights... They look like absolute world beaters. They look like, you know, they smoked your Vancouver Canucks 5-2 in a game that looked like an NHL team against an AHL team. There's the, you see it some nights where there's this ability to look like they could be second, third in the Pacific. And then there's other nights where they look like they could be 15th in the Western Conference. The Flames are exactly where I figured they would be. And in a very similar boat to what we thought they would be. There's been very little resolution on a lot of the, the, the free agents to be, but to be honest, there's been no resolution on some of them. Yeah. We're in a holding pattern on any, on any of those discussions, you know, apparently about a month ago, Noah Hannafin was literally inches away from pen to paper on a huge extension. And they decided to pull back probably for the best. Elias Lindo, nothing's come to fruition there. Now, you know, Lindholm's leading the team in points. Um, you know, it's not a ton. You only have 15 to 21 games. But to be fair, the Flames aren't a high-scoring team. They're, they're not. That was one of the knocks of the team heading into the season was where were the goals going to come from? And with Blake Coleman's leading your team in goals with six, and then you have about 20 other guys with five, four, and three, it's the definition of scoring by committee. That's what the Flames are. 
Now, the, the way the Flames have got to where they are this year, being two points out of a playoff spot, has been the, the fun of it. They started off the season okay. They, you know, a couple wins in the first few games. And then, boom, they go on this horrific six-game losing streak. They lose, like, seven of eight. Everybody's writing them off. Trade everybody. Fire everybody. You know, Ryan Huska sucks. Get rid of him. I can't believe. Bring back Daryl Sutter. You know, oh. the range of emotions of of this team. Then, boom, they go and win, you know, seven of their next 11 games or, or six of 11 or something like that. They go and win, and, and boom, they, I don't say rocket up the standings, but they go from – you know, 31st in the NHL to two points out of a playoff spot. It's been a Jekyll and Hyde season for the Flames. There's been extreme highs, extreme lows, but they are where we figured they would be. Now I want to go into a little bit of, you know, some specifics as to why and some performances of players, positive performances of players. While they've let some of the young guys play this year, Connor Zari has come up, looks fantastic. Martin Hospitals come up for the minors, look fantastic. They are now everyday NHLers. They have reinvigorated Nazem Kadri, playing on the line together, seeing a lot more out of Nazem Kadri. Jacob Markstrom has looked decent to start his season, a uh, far cry from where he was last year. He's looked really good. I haven't liked his last handful of games. I feel like there's a little bit of last year creeping into his game, but all in all, he still looked pretty good. One of the big elephants in the room still is Jonathan Huberto for what he's being paid. Jonathan Huberto is definitely not performing to the numbers you want. But that being said, I'm not going to bash on Jonathan Huberto. His last, you know, seven, eight games have been good. He's starting to look like the player that the Calgary Flames thought they might be acquiring, not the 115 point player. I don't think Calgary ever thought they were acquiring that guy. The point of game nice. player, the 80 that would have been nice. <laughs> the point of game player, the 80 point guy, the 90 point guy. He's had some flashes over the last seven or eight games that he looks like he's coming around. The reason Jonathan Huberto is not a point of game player, and one of the biggest reasons why the Calgary Flames are fighting for a wild card spot and not a you know, top three in division, our power play. Our power play has got to be. The worst power play I have ever seen in the NHL. We're sitting 27th in the league, operating at 11.8%. Well, that 11.8%, a lot of that came from the first five games of the season when they scored a, a few power play goals. Since I think it was a game in Washington, and I'm going to steal, I think it's Darren Haynes' tweet, kind of talking about the power play efficiency since a game against Washington in the middle of October, will be fourth or fifth game of the season, Dylan Dubé scored a, a power play goal. Since then, and we're talking 15 games and roughly 60 power plays, the Calgary Flames are at a net zero when it comes to power play efficiency. They've scored four power play goals in those 60 opportunities, which is like a – uh, 7% effectiveness. They've also given up for shorthanded goals. Their power play is operating at a net zero for over a month now. Well, that's unheard of. You want to talk about guys like Jonathan Huberto not being point-of-game players? How can they when this power play can't score? 
A power play should operate around 20%, one in five. You should get a power play goal every almost every other game. The Calgary Flames are getting a power play goal once every five games, six games, and they get one, maybe. How can Jonathan Huberto get to 90 points? How can Nazem Kadri get to 70 points? How can Elias Lindholm get to 80 points when you can't score on the power play? It is, they not even can, can't score on the power play. They can't even gain zone entry. They can't even get into the zone. They played the Colorado Avalanche last night. They had seven minutes and 23 seconds of power play time in the game last night. They generated one shot in seven minutes of power play time. Unbelievable. The Calgary Flames, if they had a power play that was operating at 20-25%, would probably be in the top three of the Pacific Division. They don't. It's horrific. I, I can't put it much further than that. They've actually turned a corner and are playing much better hockey. They're still struggling with their in-zone coverage under Ryan Huska, though it's getting better. It is getting better. They still bleed a ton of scoring opportunities. I feel like they're trending in the right direction. This team, when you can't score and you struggle to score, if you're not operating on the power play, you're done. And unless the Flames figure the power play out this year, they're done. Their next 12 games, they got an absolute gauntlet of, you know, twice against the Avs, twice against the Knights, twice against the Star. Like, their schedule coming up is brutal. It is highly possible that come the middle of December, the Calgary Flames season is over, and they're down at the bottom of the Western Conference again, unless they can, you know, turn it around, and the great sell-off will begin. I'm surprised it hasn't begun yet, but it will begin. And I still think it will, whether they're in contention or not. There's going to be a sell-off at some point on this team, and they're going to change directions. Yeah, you, you can't have what happened, you know, a season or so ago with Kachuk and Goudreau happen again. Um, speaking from experience, the, the, when the Canucks had Mar- Marky and Tanev and all those guys walk the fan bases are not happy when that happens. So I would assume this season with how things are going, how they do go, you guys will make some some moves to try and improve and keep that from happening. But I just like this this uh sports season for the last almost eight months has been a little different for me because you know the wife's been at home, so I, I don't get to watch as many non my team games because uh I think uh, I might get murdered if I had sports on 24-7 while I was home. But I haven't seen it as much. I have seen some highlights, and I do pay attention to what's going on. You know, strictly from looking at a stats page, I think one thing that stands out to me is Huberto and Kadri's plus-minus. Like, that's something I think those guys, between the two of them, they're minus 12 and minus 10. Like, you can't have those guys being outpaced that badly for what they're how they're scoring for versus how they're getting scored on like that's something i think the team would probably be doing a lot better if they were closer to being just even even players right if you can eliminate 22 goals while they're on the ice then that's that's a lot that's a considerable amount um there's some teams that would have liked to have only allowed 22 goals so far this season or get to that point 
it's an up and down. I think there's still a bit of a Jekyll Hyde with the Flames and who they are and the changes that have happened. Obviously, the coaching change needed to happen. We talked about this. The players wanted that. The players got it. The players aren't necessarily stepping up to do that. Where you look at the same situation in New York with the Rangers. Well, the Rangers are a top team this season. They they said, we don't want Glant. They took Glant out. They brought a new coach. And they're playing. They're, they're, they're a top team in the league right now. And I think that whether that the pressure of that has gotten to the team or maybe they kind of, and I'm not saying this is just throwing this out there. The foot came off the pedal a bit because maybe they didn't feel the, the Daryl pressure and they thought they could maybe take it easy. I don't, I don't know. Like it's just, you'd think after getting what you wanted that there would be a little bit more positivity and better outcomes for this team. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree. I, I have seen better play out of guys like Kadri and Huberto this year. You know, it started off the whole team really struggled for the first seven, eight games. There was uh they really struggled with the transition in, you know, pretty much going from a man-to-man defense to a zone defense in the defensive zone. There was a lot of early on, like guys had no idea where they were supposed to be on the ice. There was definitely an adjustment period. I feel like it's gotten better. There's, you know, I, 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 there's not nearly as much running around as there was early on in the season. There's still a lot of their play at the, the, the two blue lines is not good enough. They're not good enough at getting the puck out of their own zone. And they turn over the puck way too often at the other, at the opponent's blue line. Those are two of the worst places to not be good. If you're not good at the two blue lines, you're in trouble. I feel like they're getting better, but, and there's been, there's been some definite improvement in Kadri specifically, but in general, there's still brain cramps on this team. And they, you know, Nikita Zadorov, you wonder sometimes, what the hell are you thinking, man? With, you know, we know it's getting me the, the hell safe, out of here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Get me out of here. Make the safe play. Like this team, sometimes I, I feel like they're just afraid to make the safe play. You know, sometimes you do just need to dump it in or dump it out instead of trying to make a, beautiful behind the back pass at your blue line that gets intercepted and, and ends up in the back of your net. Well, you might as well have just, you know, the rep Warner special off the glass and out. like yeah. sometimes there's nothing wrong with that. It's, well, I, th- I think here, like you talk about like the, the team's still trying to learn under Huska. And again, this is a NHL gets in their own way. I don't see anything wrong with, players who are in town either all the time or early wanting to get together with coaches or anyone that's there to work on things in the off season. The Canucks were fined $50,000 because Dakota Joshua and somewhere else were in town and requested to work with some of the coaches who were here were there to like, and that's a player going to the organization. Hey, I want to get better. I want to, what do I need to do? Right? Like, What's the harm in that? In in allowing teams to work with their players in the offseason, if that's what they it's completely voluntary, right? But you wouldn't have this like, okay, here's a three-week training camp. Hi, I'm your new coach. I'm gonna put in a completely different system. Like, like I think there's benefits to that. And I think the league again gets in their own way with it. 
Yep, don't necessarily disagree. Ken, let's let's move on to and maybe outside of the Oilers, one of the biggest surprises of the NHL season so far. You know, like the Oilers are one of the biggest surprises for uh, negative doing poorly. And let's move on to the Canucks, who are one of the biggest surprises for playing positive hockey and well, being high up in the standings. Let's take that hour twenty flight out west to the uh, to the west coast in Vancouver. You know, you and I talked about this very certainly exact same thing the Flames. They could be fifth, sixth, seventh in the in the West, in the Pacific, or they could be third. And right now they're in a tie with the LA Kings for second in the Pacific, or third because of games played. But realistically, they're they're only a point behind Vegas right now, both teams. The the Vancouver Canucks have come out flying, and you know, some people will point to the schedule, but you gotta play I will. The, yeah, I will. They, you gotta play these games regardless, right? But where this is the difference where I'm gonna say, sure, they may not be playing all the juggernauts of the NHL right now, but you still gotta play those games. You still gotta win those games. And the Canucks you still last have year, to lose to the Sharks. It's gonna happen eventually. You <laughs> they're pissed off because we played them three times and whooped their ass before that. So of course they came out with a chip on their shoulder last night. And I'll also say the Canucks did not play their best game last night, right? Like I'm not one to throw the schedule out as an excuse, but I will say the Canucks have 13 back-to-backs this season and have already played five of them. I think like the, the travel for Western Canadian teams, Edmonton, Calgary included is atrocious. You play five games in eight days across three time zones, two back-to-backs in there. It's going to take its toll, but not focusing on that. The Canucks, they're not just winning these games 2-1, 3-2, 6-5. They're winning these games handedly. They are doing what they should be doing to the lesser I say lesser opponents. I'm talking standings-wise. They got the teams that are lower in the standings, not performing well. They are beating them with conviction. They're winning games 4-1, 5-2, 6-1, 8-1 to start the season against the Oilers. 6-2 against the Oilers. This team is beating the teams that they should be beating based on where they are in the standings and doing it by scoring goals. The games where they are playing the tougher competition, I would say the game against the, the New York Rangers. Went to overtime, the Canucks lost. The Canucks deserved a better outcome in that game. They outplayed the Rangers for the majority of it, and it was one in overtime. The Canucks probably should have come away with that with two points. A lot of the games where the Canucks have lost, they've lost seven games this year in regulation. At least four of those, they were in the game. The game against Colorado, it was 5-2. The score was not indicative of how that game was played. It was a 2-2 game after 40, a tight, good, well-played game. Two mistakes in the third early on. One led to a McCarr breakaway on a breakout of the Zoe. Took the puck off of Miller and was already moving in. The Canucks were in the offensive zone, so that they were not expecting Miller to lose the puck like that. McCarr goes in on a breakaway. Hey, he's going to score. Bad decision in the defensive zone. Ends up in the net. Even at 4-2, the Canucks weren't out of that game. There was always that feeling they could come back. Uh, then the fifth was an empty netter, so it is what it is. It The score did not, looking at it on paper, is not an indication of how the game was played. There's only been a few. I'd say the Toronto game, they they lost that one 5-2. 
they weren't really in it. The Flames game, that was a game that they weren't really they they weren't really in. And and last night was a game that they didn't look ready for. Now I didn't bring like that was a game they had to fly into Oakland versus San Jose. They had to fly into Oakland and then bus it to San Jose in like the middle of the night after leaving Seattle because of the NHL curfew. This team is leading the league in goals scored, leading the go- league in goal differential. Um, their penalty kill is sitting 22nd in the league, and that's a 10 point 10 spot jump. So I'm gonna say woohoo! Good for the they they've fixed it to a point. They're they're 10 spots better than they were last year, and that was a major factor why they lost a lot of games last year. Their penalty kill killed them. Last year, they had a top 10 power play, and you said it yourself, Trevor. They're going to need to have an elite top three power play. They're sitting third in the league as power play right now. This team is deadly on the power play. Their penalty kill is much better. They're getting great goaltending from Demko. DeSmith, he didn't look great last night against San Jose. Outside of that, the games he has played, he has been really good. DeSmith, that pickup was fantastic by the Canucks to get a bona fide backup for Thatcher Demko. And DeSmith has been, in my opinion, very good this year and has done the job when called upon. So I think the Canucks have done what they've needed to do because you and I saw saw it last year. Any chance they had to win a game, they blew it. Any chance that like they, they would found ways to lose with big leads. And when they did win games against teams that may, like, there wasn't many below them in the standings, but the teams that were worse off than them, they they barely beat them. And this year they are, for the most part, playing great hockey. Quinn Hughes is plus 18, 33 points along with Miller. Pedersen's got 29 points. Brock Besser's tied for the league lead in goals uh, scoring. The Canucks are, like, Philip Hronick, Go back to last year in the trade talk for Bo Horvat. I would have built a package around him from Detroit. Canucks ended up getting him in a roundabout way in that deal with the Islanders. He and Hughes have been fantastic together. Both of them are on like an 11 or 12 point uh, game streak, 12 game streak for for scoring. Um, and Talkit is doing things that, like Kuzmenko has been healthy scratch the last two games because he wants more out of him. Right, Talkit is getting a lot out of the guys in the bottom of the lineup. The bottom six has played great hockey too. No one outside of I'd say the Chaos Giraffe, Tyler Myers, has really been a big liability on the ice at times. And even he's had a bit of a turnaround from when he was, you know, throwing pucks up the middle of the ice twenty four seven every chance he could. The Canucks have turned it around, and yeah, they may not be playing all the top teams. They got Vegas coming up. Vegas isn't playing that hot right now either. That's a that's going to be a bit of a test to see how they do. I think they did well against Colorado. Another, you know, measuring stick that they of how the, who they're going to have to end up playing in the playoffs. They lost the game, but can the Canucks beat Colorado? Absolutely. I I will say that without not I'm not saying in a game they can beat Colorado. It wasn't Colorado did not dominate the Canucks in that game by any means. Because you're making faces on the other side they can't see. Um, the Canucks can hang with... Right now, I think the Canucks can hang with any team in the NHL. 
and make it a close game. I can agree with some of what you said there. And the Cucks are a great story. Here's something I'm going to ask you. What are the Florida Panthers, the St. Louis Blues, and the Dallas Stars all have in common? Those are the only teams with a winning record that the Canucks have beat this year. Three of their 14 victories have been against teams with a record of 500 or higher. You've lost to Colorado. You've lost to the Rangers. You haven't played anybody else. I'll fully buy into the Canucks when I see them beat an elite team. They haven't yet. They've beat up the teams on the schedule presented to them, which you need to do. I will give right. the Canucks that credit. They've done what they've had to do. The Canucks have had a ridiculously soft schedule to start, and it's going to get a lot harder soon. I'm very interested to see them play Vegas. I'm very interested you know, to see them play Colorado again. I want to see them play Tampa Bay. You got smoked against the Leafs. That's another good team. I want to see you play Boston. The Canucks have won the games with the schedule presented to them. Good on them. They're, they put themselves in a very envious position because of it. They're most likely, I just don't see how the Canucks could fall out of the playoff spots right now because they've done such a good job of winning the games in front of them. I will not buy into the Canucks until I see them start to beat some of these best teams. You lost to the Rangers. You lost to the Avalanche. Beat them, and I'll believe. Yeah, but those were beat those them. were games that they weren't out of, though. Like that's. Yeah, the I don't thing. care. You didn't win. You didn't win. Beat them, and I'll believe. It's a results-driven league. You're gonna have to say you get into the play. Say you get into the playoffs, and you're playing the Colorado Avalanche in a seven-game series. Are you gonna be happy because you almost beat them in a game? Well, no, that's going to lose you the series. You know, the Canucks are doing a lot of really, really, really good things. I'm, I'm not trying to downplay that. I want to see them beat the best teams in the league, and we haven't seen it yet. Here's another small concern I have about the Canucks, and, and it kind of, I think, does lend to the fact they played lesser competition. JT Miller's not a 130-point player. JT Miller's on pace for 130 points right now. Quinn Hughes is not a 130-point player. Quinn Hughes is on pace for 130 points right now. Brock Besser is not a 60-goal scorer. Brock Besser is on pace for 60 goals right now. And there's going to be a slight regression in these guys' production at some point this season. Can the Canucks continue to play, you know, 600 hockey when JT Miller, Quinn Hughes, Elias Patterson? aren't on a 130-point pace, because that's what they all are right now. What happens when Brock Besser doesn't score a goal in 10 games? You know, because, again, he's on a 60-goal pace. That's not where he's going to end. Brock Besser's going to end probably somewhere with 35, 40 goals. And the Canucks continue to be the dominant team that they've looked like early on this year when these guys aren't at that level of production. I think you and I would agree JT Miller's probably going to finish somewhere with 100 to 110 points. Quinn Hughes, somewhere around 100 to 110 points. Pedersen might get to 120. He's the guy I fully believe in on this list. He'll he'll pace what he's at. Well, when you're talking from 130 points to 100 points or 110 points, that's a lot of goals off the board. Are the Canucks as good as those numbers suggest when they're not going to get that kind of production out of these guys? It's been a killer start. It's not going to continue. 
can the Canucks play 650 hockey when they're not getting that type of production from these guys? I'll say at this point, yeah. So you go from scoring right now, they're scoring four goals a game. And they're we're gonna go back to the NHL page here. They are scoring out of four goals, four goals a game and giving up two and a half. So if you can keep it at three, three and a half, and you still give up that under three, you're still going to win those games, right? Like you're talking about potentially the Canucks having three guys over a hundred points plus Besser probably in the 80 to 90 point range. Like you're talking almost 400 points there across two lines of scoring. But that what? But to my point, that's not going to continue. Brock Besser is not a hundred point player. Philip Ronick is on pace right now for 80 points. Ronick is not an 80 point defender. There's, from my perspective, there's going to be a bit of a dip in their production. And they keep up what they're doing when that dip it happens. Yeah, they're playing well, and that's what I was getting to is they're playing better defensive hockey. Noah Juleson is the only player on the team that's a minus player right now. And he's not an everyday player. He's in because Carson Soucy was hurt at the beginning of the season uh, from an injury that happened in preseason against the Flames. And then he just blocked a shot and probably has a broken foot. So Juleson is the outlier in that in that stat because he's in because of injury. Can the Canucks still play? Like Carson Soucy is a plus six. So when you put your regulars out there, this team is playing good defensive hockey, which is what they were not doing last year. They don't need to win a game every game 5-1. They don't need to win every game 6-2, right? Like if they win the games 3-1, 4-2, 2-1, they, they can still win these games. What I see from the Canucks is a, what they've preached all about what they needed last year is structure and a develop a plan where everyone's buying in. Everyone's buying into that you're not seeing the JT Miller blow up on the ice of being pissed off because something happened. Temper tantrums. (laughs) There's been a couple F-bombs dropped, as there usually is in a game, but you're not seeing that. The guys that they've brought in to play in the roles that they wanted, the the guys they signed were all penalty kill, like what you call penalty specialists. They were brought in to improve the penalty kill. Well, there's a 10-spot jump in the penalty kill right now already in a quarter part of the season. Can it still improve? Absolutely. You want that to be at least 16th or better in the league. But they're, they've improved in that sense. You've got guys playing good hockey. And I think whether even you have all four of those guys hit 100 plus or well, as long as they're 90 plus, that's still a lot of goals and a lot of games that they should be winning. Right. They've got a top three penalty or power play. If that continues, teams take penalties. If they can win the power plays, the power play battles, and and score goals that way, good chance you're going to win games. You guys for the Flames aren't scoring power play goals. You're not winning games, right? Not like you are, but it's a. Well, it's I said it. If, if the Flames had a thirty percent power play right now, the Flames would be ahead of the Canucks in the standings. They don't trust me. Yeah. They don't. <laughs> so, do I expect to have Pedersen, Hughes? Uh, Miller and Besser all be 130, 110 point players. No, the kids, they are all 100 point players uh, for the three, and then Besser's at 85, 90. That's a pretty good stat when you could have your top players putting up 400 plus points on a season 
there's going to be a success there right now. Yeah. The, the, the competition, like you talked about some of the teams that they've beat are lower, but they should be higher in the standings. Like the Oilers, we've beat up on them three times. We've beat them 18 to six over three games, right? That's a team that should be better, but no way we held McDavid and Drysidle to very little and we beat them. Right. That was off the beginning of the season, not necessarily well into their downplay. So I do I expect the Canucks to continue at that torrid pace? Probably not. No, but I've seen the games and I've seen the ones where they came in and didn't play and talk. It's called it out on the back to backs. They got to learn how to play those games and win because that's what playoff teams do. And they've struggled in some of those still won. I'd even say the Ottawa game, they went in not playing well. Still won that game 5-1-5-2, right? Like they found ways to still, when not playing great hockey, to play well enough to win. And it's just, it's one of those things where I, I don't expect the, the Canucks to sit fourth or third in the NHL come game 82 completion. But they're playing at a pace that will make them, I think, a much more dangerous team to play. And right now, looking at the stats where, you know, Juleson's minus five and Bluger over his eight games is a even, and no one else is a, a negative. That's a pretty good stat right now. The team's buying into what, what's going on from the coaching staff. I can take a little bit of credit for my season prediction of the Vancouver Canucks. I said the Vancouver Canucks, there's one thing that will make them a playoff team, a really good team, and that is Thatcher Demko's health. I said if Thatcher Demko can come into the season and be what he was three years ago and give a low two goals against average and a you know a nine fifteen to nine twenty five save percentage, I said the Canucks will be a have an opportunity to be a good team. Well, where are we at? Thatcher Demko's got a two point one eight goals against average and a nine twenty five save percentage. He was the biggest X factor always for me heading into the season for the Vancouver Canucks, and I said it. I said if you get all world goaltending from Thatcher Demko, you guys are probably a playoff team. You're in a good spot. Well, you're getting that. I'm not fully convinced that the, the Vancouver Canucks are fixed defensively and are as sound as you as you're saying they are. I think Thatcher Demko is a big reason why some of those numbers are down. I think Thatcher Demko is a big reason why your PK percentage is up. It, it's natural. You get good goaltending, your goals against looks better, and your PK looks better. I'm not convinced that the Canucks are actually that much better of a defensively sound team. I think they are playing with more structure. I think the healthy Demko is the biggest reason that the Canucks are where they are. And I think him being healthy also allows players like Quinn Hughes, Elias Patterson to play with more confidence in their game, willing to take more chances, willing to try to be more offensively dynamic when they know they got a rock star sitting in net behind them that will probably bail them out. They're willing to play a little bit more freewheeling, high-octane style when that guy between the pipes is probably going to cover up for a mistake. I think Thatcher Demko is number reason A, B, C, all the way through Z as to why the Vancouver Canucks are where they are. He has just solidified them in their own zone and has given them all-world goaltending. He's probably the best goaltender in the NHL right now. I know there's fans in Boston that may not agree with that, but Thatcher Demko to me is the best goalie in the in the NHL, and that's a pretty good 
recipe to, to have success in the NHL because there's such an offshoot to everybody else. You know, the chaos giraffe doesn't look as bad when Thatcher Demko makes the save. It's 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 just there's an offshoot of having solid goaltending. The confidence level of everybody else increases tenfold. And that is what you're seeing, in my opinion, with the Vancouver Ducks. And I, th- I think I think I will add again, like, does Smith gives Demko that feeling of I don't need to play 78 games this season for us to have a chance because – like out of twenty-two games last year, how many would you have said Demko would have started? Well, none because um, he was hurt. Well, <laughs> but realistically, he probably would have seen him in 18, 17, 18 games. Yeah, you're only going to see him in sixty this year, give or take, and that that's yeah. about what he should be. Still, so. and that's where he's at because in fifteen games he started. Out of the twenty-two, he started fifteen. The Smith has come in relief of one and started seven. So that's a huge difference for the Canucks right there that they didn't have the previous seasons. And I think, and I'm not by no means saying that the Canucks defense is fully fixed with Ian Cole, Carson Soucy coming in and, and, and having a Peronic for full 82 games, but defensively they're a hell of a lot better than they were. And I think a big nod to that goes to Gonchar and foot on the bench with uh, as assistant coaches, they've brought in a defensive. Those guys were were really good defenders in their time. They know how to play the game and they're passing that on. Um, Quinn Hughes actually having a full-time legitimate defensive partner in Hronik has been massive for him. I think that's been a huge thing because he can do what he does and not have to worry about who's on his, his side. Luke Shen, there's no knock on him because he, he played really well with the Canucks with Hughes, but Luke Shen doesn't have the foot speed that Hronik does. Right, if Ronick doesn't have the skill set that Ronick does, and the two of them can score, I I think the Canucks are miles ahead of where they were last year at this right now, and by no means, like I said, I already said they're not going to finish first in the NHL. If they do, great, but they're going to finish near the top. I think they will be well within the top ten. They'll be top three Pacific. I again, I start beating the good teams, and I you know. I'll buy in a little bit more. The Canucks are facing a little bit of adversity right now. They're they're a 500 hockey club in the last 10. They're only five and five. You know, is are, are we starting to see a little bit of that regression from where they were to start the year? Because they came out guns a blazing in the first, you know, 15 games. Well, now all of a sudden they're a 500 hockey club over the last 10. Are those the actual Vancouver Canucks or is it the team that played – 800 hockey for the first 10 games. What are they? I believe they're closer to that 500 club above it, but closer to that than the team that was playing 750 hockey to start the year. I I think, you know, a lot's going to be determined when the Canucks start to play. So they got a tougher schedule coming up. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. And I'll say from, from watching all the Canucks games, when I talk about those games against Colorado and New York, Previous seasons, they would have been smoked, and they wouldn't even been in those games. The the progression that they've made and the improvements that they've came in with, those were games. The New York one, especially, should have been a W. But they they were they weren't out of those games, and even games they've trailed, they weren't out of those games. There wasn't a point like, well, this is done. It was 
no, they, they're capable of coming back, and they did. They come back from a 3-1 deficit, win the game. They've done that at least two, maybe three times this year. It's a much different team, much different. You can see it in how they play. There isn't that dejection the second they get down by a goal, goal or two. Well, that's the – there's a lot. That, that has an offshoot. Like, you can pretty much flip the script for the Oilers and the Canucks this year. You know, the Oilers from, like, from year over year. The Canucks were the team that were down on themselves, dejected. They were low in the standings. The Oilers were this high-flying, high-octane team, happy on the bench. And now you, you've almost seen a complete role reversal with those two teams. And, you know, the Canucks, you can tell they have confidence playing ahead of uh, Thatcher Demko. And the Oilers are playing ahead of Stuart Skinner and Jack Campbell. And there's just like this on the bench, you can just see this dejection. De- dejection. You know what I'm saying. Dejection. They look dejected. <laughs> <laughs> when a sad, they look sad, and they look sad and deflated, and it's just such a role reversal between the two teams, in my opinion, this year. That you know that was a really good point. That but you know the you play better when you have more confidence that the puck is going to end up in your net every time some of the best players on the other team are on the ice. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's been a huge turnaround, and I got to say, um, I think. My my side of things, talk it and the guys on the bench have done a have done a good job with getting them ready for the game and holding players accountable and saying like he benched Miller for a good portion of his second period because Miller kind of had one of those tantrums, took two dumb penalties, and and needed to sit for a little bit. So we put him on door duty for like the last five minutes of the second period. No one's done that before. Talk it's holding them accountable to be better. And you can see how it's turning out in the play. Trevor, that's kind of our our trip around the the Western Canadian teams. Uh, one real big surprise coming out of it in the Oilers. I think we can both agree we expected more out of them. And uh, Canucks are a good surprise. The Flames are where we kind of figure they'd be. But uh, it, it's going to be interesting over the last three quarters of the season. There's still time to, to go and uh, time for the Canucks to run away with it. But... Uh... <laughs> We'll uh, see how it all plays out, right? This is why I love – this is why I hate analytics, and I actually love watching the games. Analytics would have the Canucks in 30th, the the Oilers first in every league, and the Flames somewhere in the middle. This is why I actually love watching the players play the actual games. Take your expected goals for, your expected goals against, and shove them up your ass because they don't matter. And it's But, hey, Matt, Matthew Phillips would be the top scorer in the NHL. Yeah, like take your analytics, <laughs> shove them. They're not. They're not why we watch the game. We watch the game to see it actually be played. So, bring on more games. I'm happy to watch. It's a, a much better season as a fan, Canucks fan this year. Whichever. There's gonna be a lot more to talk about. We got some baseball off season. There's some rumors going around. Uh, who will be coming to the to the Blue Jays? Who's on the way out? Nobody. Yeah. <laughs> who's gonna sign Matt Chapman for way more money way than the Jays? Way more money than the Jays are willing to pay. Apparently, Shohei Itani is on his way to Toronto thanks to Yusei Kikuchi having lunch with them. We'll see what pans out there. But uh, make sure to go check out Belly of Sports, bellyofsports.com. Check out all the articles, all the different podcasts. And uh, enjoy just another sports day in the, in the world. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. See you next week. Thanks, everyone.